Good morning again. This morning we are continuing. Yeah, see, see, I rushed into it on purpose to see if you would do it. You did a great job, guys. You did a great job. Um, if you're visiting here, it's just a whole big story. Okay, they're really bad good morningers normally, but they've grown so much over the last week, and I want you to know that. So if you're visiting here, they, that was really good. Um, anyway, this morning we're continuing our study through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, we're going to be looking at Galatians 1, verses 18 through 24. So go ahead and turn there. And really compared to the way that the letter started, kind of how Paul just kind of jumps into this with this defense of his apostleship, a defense of the gospel, and then especially uh, to where most of you likely know that we're headed, where Paul is in, in weeks ahead and in months ahead, uh, has these powerful proclamations uh, that Paul makes about the gospel and elements of the gospel. Uh, the next 17 verses, the verses we're going to be covering this week and next, may seem um, a bit anticlimactic if you're just reading through the book of Galatians. Paul claims that his limited contact with the apostles demonstrates that he did not receive his gospel from them. But hopefully, we all will agree that the history matters. Paul's very intentional in writing this letter. He's not accidentally including a part that doesn't carry weight. And so, if if he decided to include what we have in verse 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, then we should seek to follow his direction rather than assuming we know where he's going. Because when we do exegesis, personally, not just what we do from uh, the preaching here at, at Cornerstone, but when we personally do exegesis, our goal should be to stand in the place of the text to see the content through the eyes of the writer of the text instead of our own eyes. And if we do that, we'll be more likely to see that he said exactly what he meant to say and hopefully to understand it better. Now, obviously, obviously, we all bring questions to the text, to each and every text that we read. We all bring questions questions, but our task in being faithful to God and faithful to His Word is first and foremost to do our very best to find out what the first century questions were, and then what answer the first century writers are giving to those questions, whether it's Paul or Luke or Peter or James or whoever it is, our task is first and foremost, what are the questions being asked then? So that we can say, okay, how is Paul or Peter or whoever, how is he answering those questions, not just the questions that we bring from our culture and our home life to the text? Those are important for us but first and foremost, what is being said in the text, and why is it being said? And so, let's get into this 
mostly historical text and work through it. Galatians chapter 1, starting with verse 18, reading through verse 24. Go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is good and your word is truth. And so we ask that you'd help us to see it as true, to embrace it as the truth, and help us to know you better, to love you more because of what you have spoken. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The main point in these verses is to emphasize that Paul's commission to preach the gospel and his understanding of the gospel did not at all come from the Jerusalem apostles, but from Jesus Christ himself. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Paul did not go up to Jerusalem until three years after seeing Christ on the Damascus road. And you may not realize that if you've only looked at Luke's account of Paul in the book of Acts. But that's what Paul's telling us here, writing to the Galatians. His gospel was clearly then not dependent on the apostles, Because he did not even see the apostles until three years after his conversion. One commentator gives an outline that's helpful here. Says this, if we assume that Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road around A.D. 33, then then the chronology falls out quite easily. The first Jerusalem visit, which is what we're reading in the text today, verses 18 through 24, takes place in roughly A.D. 36. The second visit, what we'll look at next week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, with Barnabas and Titus takes place 14 years after Paul's meeting with Jesus on the Damascus road, not after the first visit. It can be dated roughly to A.D. 46-47. This visit corresponds to the famine relief visit of Acts 11:27 through 30. That is then followed by Paul's first missionary journey in A.D. 47-48, in which he evangelizes the towns in the Roman province of Galatia, that is, southern Turkey. It's after that, when Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch, that people from Jerusalem arrive both in Antioch and Galatia, insisting that male Gentile Jesus followers should be circumcised. Paul then has his face-to-face argument with Peter that we see in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. He then writes Galatians in a tearing hurry before he and Barnabas set off for the so-called apostolic conference in Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 15, which can be dated to roughly A.D. 48, 49. That is, 
after the entire episode, including Paul's writing of the present letter. After that, and after the sad rupture between him and Barnabas that we read in Acts 15, 36-41, Paul sets off on his second journey. Now here, in Galatians 1, 18, on this first visit, three years after he met the risen Jesus, he says he spent two weeks, 15 days, with Peter. Now he refers to Peter with his Aramaic name, which is Cephas in the verse, But he spends 15 days with Peter, and he met James, but that was it. And his meeting with Peter is described with the Greek word for an account or a personal story. I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. So Paul is mentioning that he went to make Peter's acquaintance. Not that he went to get a theology lesson from Peter. Now, it's certain that in two weeks together, Paul and Peter didn't just talk about the weather. But likewise, no one could accuse Paul of getting his gospel from Peter. Because he'd only spent two weeks with Peter. It's likely we can... can imagine and presume this is Paul and Peter meeting each other and spending 15 days together. It's likely that Paul and Peter did learn from each other. Paul was probably interested in hearing from Peter about the historical Jesus, to hear about what life with Jesus on earth was like. Peter walked with Jesus for three and a half years as he preached, as he brought the kingdom of God as he healed, as he did all of the things we read about in the Gospels. You consider a a possible example. You think about um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's account of the Lord's Supper. We don't know where or how Paul knew of what the Lord said in the upper room. He wasn't there. Maybe it was from his time with Peter. But he says there, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what's he doing? He's recounting what happened in the upper room. Paul received that in some way. Received specifics about a time when Jesus was on earth and Paul wasn't there to experience it. And he's able to communicate to those he's writing to what Jesus did and said. Now, the point here in verse 18 is that Paul specifies that he and Peter spent only 15 days together. And why does he mention that detail? Likely to emphasize how limited the time period was. He didn't didn't see Peter for three years after his conversion, and when he did see him, it was a short time, 15 
days. So no one would think that two weeks was enough time to make one person another's disciple. It goes on in verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Not only did Paul not see Peter for three years after his conversion and only spent 15 days with him, but he didn't see the remaining apostles at all except for James. The only other apostle he saw was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James played an important role in the history of the church. Seems to be the chief leader in the Jerusalem church. Now, we should look at something here. Because in Acts 9.27, it says, but Barnabas took him, Saul, now Paul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So it seems like Luke is contradicting Paul's account in Galatians. That he in fact did see the apostles. Now, you might, you might ask, why do you bring that up? Why do you even mention that? We're not even looking at Acts. We wouldn't even known that. You're going to someday, hopefully. If you, don't, if you don't know it already, you should be reading these things. You should be reading the text. You should be making connections between what it's saying in Acts and what it's saying. You should be doing that. And so, at some point, you're going to read it, and you're going to scratch your head and say, well, Paul, you said you didn't, and Barnabas says you did. Luke and Paul's different agendas. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. So Luke and Paul's different agendas in writing dictate the way that they present the story. We saw last week. I mean, Luke jumps right into uh, what Paul begins doing in his ministry. And we find out from Galatians, there's a big break there. So it's possible then that Luke uses the plural apostles loosely, that the apostles that Paul saw were the two he mentions here in Galatians 1, Peter and James. Verse 20, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. So at this point, Paul makes this oath. He demonstrates the importance of what he is laying out here. It gives the evidence that Paul's opponents were accusing him, which we've been saying throughout this letter so far, that he is under attack in Galatia. The accusations are being made against Paul. And so he takes an oath that he is telling the truth. He is not lying. He only does that in one other place, which is 2 Corinthians 11.31 that says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. So Paul here is defending himself against these rival teachers who have come in to Galatia, making accusations about him and the gospel that he is preaching. 
Again, Acts 9, 26-30 gives the impression that, that more happened than what Paul says here, that he's maybe better known to the followers of Jesus than, than what he says here. But we know from Acts 9 that he engages in debate with non-Jesus-believing Judeans and gets himself into so much trouble that the church decides to send him off back to Tarsus and Cilicia. Which brings us to verses 21 and 22. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I'm still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Paul was in Jerusalem for a short period of time and then went to Syria and Cilicia. Now, both Syria and Cilicia constituted a single Roman province at the time Paul wrote Galatians. One place. And then, Paul's life enters a decade or so that remains unknown to us. We don't have written account of what's taking place there. We don't know what he did during that time specifically. All that we know is that he didn't stop praying, reading Scripture, and considering the implications of Jesus' life and the gospel. Then verse 23. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They didn't have first-hand contact with Paul. However, the report about him is circulating through Judea. People are hearing about this man who was Saul and now Paul, and they had certainly heard rumors or accounts of what Saul had done. And now they're hearing about this changed life. The content of, of what they're hearing is the dramatic change in Paul's life. The one who formerly was persecuting the church, persecuting those who loved and followed Jesus, is now preaching, is now proclaiming the gospel that he formerly despised. The one who wanted to end Christianity, just as he wrote in the text from last week, was now one of its most zealous defenders and promoters. It says, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. People are hearing this. People are rejoicing in this. That expression, preaching the faith or announcing the good news, is the expression that we see in Isaiah. Seems to be some connection to Isaiah again here. Isaiah 40, verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Preaching the faith. And the faith here in verse 23 designates the people who believed in Jesus, the message they believed, and the way of life they were adopting in Christ. Who they were in Jesus. Paul writes similarly in, similarly in, in Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 24 and they glorified God because of me. Now, who's, who's they? Those who are hearing about what God has done in Paul's life. What's the result of all of this? It produced a shout of praise. They glorified God because of me. Again, this is a reminder of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. That was true of Paul as well, true of his life. Others glorified God, brought praise and glory to God because of what they heard about Paul. The things that, that were being done through Paul. They praised God for what he had done in this servant. Once a persecutor, now a follower of Jesus and proclaimer of the gospel. We ought to consider this. We ought to consider this last verse and the response of people who are hearing about what God is doing through another person. And so I want to spend the rest of our time doing that. Considering that there is a way to live that brings glory to God. That brings praise and adoration to God as people consider what God is doing in your life. A life that seeks fame not for self, but for the one who alone deserves praise praise, and glory. Paul's ministry was powerful. His life was powerful, causing others to praise God because the transforming grace of God was evident in Paul's life. They're not praising Paul. They're not writing or singing about Paul. They're recognizing the grace of God in the transformation of a person and all glory and praise is going to the one who actually did that. People gave glory to God when they saw what God had accomplished in Paul. And so I want to ask, how are we living as followers of Jesus? 
How are we reflecting His grace in our lives? In other words, what are people seeing or hearing about God based on the way we reflect His grace that has been poured into us? Are you one who claims that Christ is central in your life, but other things clearly are what are elevated and embraced? As a church, our desire is that we be a body of people who are Christ-centered. Our our first value as a church is gospel centrality, which says this, as a church, we center our lives around our King and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Creator, Sustainer, and Lord over all creation. In our worship gatherings, we're committed to gospel-centered preaching, to singing and praise that reflects our delight in Christ, and to regular participation in the Lord's Supper as an active reminder and proclamation of our belief in the good news of Jesus. Both corporately and as individuals, we delight in the Word of God and prayer and strive towards complete surrender to Jesus in every area of our lives. So is that what the world sees or hears of when they see or hear of Cornerstone. When they see or hear about me, when they see or hear about you, do they hear of the transformation that has taken place in our hearts and in our lives? And so for the rest of our time, I just want to, I want to look at three texts that encourage us to that end as followers of Jesus. The first is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. Most of you are probably very familiar with 1 Peter 2, 9. But it says this, going through verse 12. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is a glorious text. Just to begin with, what is Peter saying of the church? He's writing to a church that is exiled. They're dispersed to many places because of persecution. But what is he writing specifically about the church here? He says, you, as a part of the church, are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God did that. He chose you, you're a chosen race, He chose you, He set you apart, He made you a distinct people, different from what you were before. He called you out of this world, this kingdom that you had been living 
in and for and made you, by His grace, a part of His kingdom. He did that so that, Peter says, you'll proclaim His excellencies. So you'll stop boasting about you and start boasting about Jesus and what He is doing and has done in your life. Peter says, God did that. That If you're in Christ, that is done, sealed, passed, over. You are a new creation now. You are a part of a new and better kingdom. That's what he says in verse 10. Once you weren't that, once you were not a people, once you were not chosen, once you were not his possession, once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You're a new kingdom. Now what? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, people who are living in a foreign kingdom now. The kingdom that used to be yours. The kingdom that used to be the one you lived a part of and worshipped and embraced and wanted all of its things. As a person living in that kingdom here, but as a part of a new and better kingdom in Christ, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, be like Paul. Live in a way that other people of this kingdom on earth are hearing about and seeing what God is doing in your life so that they have nothing bad to say about you on the day that God visits. Rather, the hope and goal is that they might worship and praise God for what He's doing in your life. And as it relates to Galatians chapter 1, that other believers, that the church is hearing about what God is doing in and through you, and they are giving glory to God because of you. Jesus also writes in Matthew chapter 5, or says in, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, this is, this is what Jesus does not say here. Jesus does not gather the followers of him, the disciples of him, and say, you have the potential of being salt of the earth. And you have the potential, if you try hard enough and you pray long enough, to be the light of the world. He does not say that. He says it's done. God made you this already. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He does not have a backup plan. There's not a just in case. You are that. He bought you. He saved you. 
and you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. So, let your light shine in such a way before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying there? Be like Paul. Live in such a way in response to the grace and mercy that has been shown to you through Jesus Christ, that others are seeing your good works and hearing of what God is doing in and through your life and that they bring glory to God. And then lastly, Paul writing to the Ephesians. And this will be brief, but encourage you again. And I know throughout the years of preaching here, I have gone back to this over and over again because it's so important. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 through verse 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this is a church letter. This is a call for what the church should be like. And one of the important words in those verses is right at the beginning, therefore. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. Why does he say, therefore? Because Paul has spent the first three chapters of Ephesians laying out your identity in Christ. That this is who you are now. That you are these things in Christ. There's no going back on it. It's you now because of the grace of God. And because that's true, because you are that 100% in position before God in Christ, Paul now in chapter 4 transitions to start saying, therefore, since that's true, start becoming in practice what you already are in position. You are blameless. You are holy. You are perfect. You're set apart in all ways in Christ. So start acting like it, Paul says. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit in, uh, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then for the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul goes through what that looks like of putting off the things that were attached to the kingdom that we live for here and putting on the things that are attached to the kingdom that we have been brought into in Christ. But he begins it here with walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. Again, when we look at Galatians 1 and we're, we're saying we ought to seek to live like Paul, that's not, a Paul, that's not a life that's boastful and saying, look what I'm doing for Jesus. It's a life of humility where others and only others are noticing what you're doing for Christ. It's not a life lived for you or me. It's a life lived for Jesus in response to the grace 
that has been shown to you in Him and Him alone. They gave glory to God because of me, Paul says. That's grace. It's grace. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. And that is grace for us. A grace that we have been entrusted with each and every week to remember Christ's body was broken so that we could go free. So that we could be brought into this new and better kingdom that is forever. That Christ's blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that we would not be crushed for our iniquities because He was. As we go into this time, let's consider the grace and mercy of Jesus. That Jesus paid it all so that we could live a life that is free to love Him and serve Him and walk in His ways. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. You're good and what You do, Lord, is good. And we are unworthy. And so we ask You to help us. Even in this time as we, as we sing and, and people come forward to receive the bread and the cup and we wait to, to take it together to worship You, Lord, we pray that You'd help us. We want to remember rightly the body and blood of Jesus. And we want to rejoice in humility over what you have accomplished and the mercy that you have granted to us. And so help us, we pray. And be glorified through it in Christ's name. Amen.